Please open your Bible to 1 Peter 5. 1 Peter 5. I've changed the order of service around a bit. Um, the order of service card is not the Bible, and I am free to do that. Uh, so we will, we're going to uh, ordain, ordain Chris after, um, after we share the Lord's Supper together. We'll get, we'll get there, but first I wanted to open up God's Word together. 1 Peter 5. Now this morning is a significant day in the life of our congregation uh, because we have this unique privilege and joy of ordaining Chris Mays into pastoral ministry. And on this unique Lord's Day, it seemed wise for us to consider just what we are ordaining Chris into. Now before any of you start to think thoughts like, oh great, let me just sit here while Devin talks to Chris. I want you to know that this is nothing like the family nights that we used to have when I was growing up as a kid, and my brothers and sisters would all have to listen as my dad corrected me for the 17th time that evening. (laughs) This is nothing like that. Each week as we gather together, we come as a people under God's Word. And we come together, and, and our primary activity as we come together is one that seems kind of passive. It's to listen. We gather to hear. We don't gather to listen or to hear me or one another so much as God. God addresses us through his word. And so we come together to listen to what he has to say to us. So even as we consider the nature of pastoral ministry together, know that God is speaking to all of us through his word. And as we listen, we trust and we know that God speaks and and what he speaks is profitable for us. That's what 2 Timothy 3 says. It's profitable for us. All Scripture is profitable for us, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that we may be complete, equipped for every good work. So these words that we're going to consider together, they're included in that description. They're a part of what is profitable for us, that we may be complete. So it's good for us to consider, us, consider these words. But not only is it good for us to consider these words because God speaks them, it's also good for us to consider these words because this is God's house. We are God's family. And it's good and right for us to know well how God structures this house, how, he, how we are to operate together as a family. And so we come to this text, 1 Peter 5, and we want to keep this reality in mind. We're not awkwardly listening in on a, on a private conversation, not meant for us. We are listening to the God of the universe, the maker of heaven and earth, speak. And so may his spirit help us to hear. Now I want us to consider this text largely because of its context. Peter is writing to a church that is facing trials. They're facing persecution, suffering. And Peter's saying they're all going to come upon you. It's going to be hard, but all of this pales in, com- pales in comparison to the glory that is to come. And it's right here in the midst of suffering that the Lord turns to speaking to those leading the church. So let us look together at what God has to say to us in 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. This is the word of God, infallible, inerrant, sufficient for us this morning. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, 
not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for revealing yourself to us through your word, establishing a relationship with us through your word. Would you this morning by your spirit open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things in your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now it's in this letter after equipping the church to suffer well, after preparing them to not be surprised by the fiery trials that are going to come, Peter turns, I think unexpectedly, to the elders, those leading the church. Peter recognized that the, recognizes that the suffering that believers face will be a particular challenge for leaders. And amidst trials and persecution, they need to know what they are called to do, to be clear on their task. And the same is true for us today. We need to know what pastors are called to do. So Peter gives this exhortation to the leaders of this church, and he brings this exhortation by first speaking of who he is. Look again at verse 1 there. Peter says that he is a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. While Peter could have made some claim of authority as an apostle, instead he chooses to identify himself with those he is exhorting. He writes as one joined with them in this office, a fellow elder, standing with them in suffering. He's not separate from them or above them, but with them, a fellow elder. But not just a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's sufferings. Now for Peter to say that he's a witness means much more than just, I saw what Jesus went through. He means that his, his words and his life now bear witness to what Christ went through. And as a sinner and a failure, as one who, when given the opportunity to identify with Jesus while Jesus suffered, but denied him three times, this is that Peter, he proclaims that he too needed Christ's suffering. He needed Christ's death on the cross. So now Peter's life and his words, they're a testimony to the reality and the power of Christ's work. He is a witness of Christ's sufferings. Peter identifies himself not as someone coming with new or original ideas, but simply as one who says what he has seen. And that's, that's what we do. We say what we see. Peter is a witness and a participant in all that Christ has done as one, all that Christ has done for those he has called to himself. And he is a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed. He is one who has his eyes fixed on a future glory, a coming reward that will be given when Christ returns. And so he exhorts the elders as a fellow, fellow elder and witness to endure in the ministry because a greater glory is coming. He tells them to trust what they cannot see, to hope in what is to come. And this is what marks our lives together as Christians. This is our shared faith. We have the conviction of things not seen. I know several of the, of the children in our congregation recently have memorized Hebrews 11.1. And faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Peter had this faith in future glory, and we can have it as well. Like what John Calvin said, he said, it's the character of faith to have trust in hidden blessings. This marks the life of the Christian. It marks the life of a pastor. Is Caleb doing okay? Uh, yeah, much better. Coca-Cola. Coca, 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 oh, he's in the back. Caleb, we're glad you're here with us. 
Faith, it's the character of faith, this is what Calvin said, the character of faith to have trust in hidden blessings. And even, even today in what we've experienced this morning already. I mean, that's, that's what we're, we hold to. These hidden blessings, and that is faith. This marks our lives together. It marks the life of a pastor as well. We hope in that which we cannot see. Now from here, Peter moves to the substance of his exhortation. And we're going to consider this exhortation under three main headings. And so the first is this, the task of pastoral ministry. The task of pastoral ministry. Peter writes in verse 2, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. And this, this summarizes the task of pastoral ministry. Shepherd the flock of God. Notice first that this task is not about shepherding my flock or our flock, but God's flock. The church is a people that are gathered together by God. We are His. The church is His. doesn't belong to us. doesn't belong to the pastors of the congregation. The church, this church, Grace Church, belongs to God. And as pastors, we, we stand as stewards of that which is not ours, but God's, as servants of God. And we've give, been given this privilege and responsibility to shepherd God's flock. But what does it mean to shepherd the flock? I want to highlight just two components of what it means to shepherd the flock. The first has to do with, with care and provision. It's to provide for the sheep. To shepherd God's flock is to provide it with food for health and well-being. And how do pastors do this? Well, we do this through the Word of God, through the Gospel. The task of pastoral ministry is to feed the flock of God the Word of God, proclaiming the Gospel of God, the only message for salvation. That's one, one aspect of pastoral ministry, to, to provide for the sheep. The other aspect of pastoral ministry is to protect the sheep. Pastors must actively protect the flock of God from that which seeks to destroy it. They are to lead it and to guard it. And we see this in the next phrase, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. To exercise oversight is to, to have a watchful eye over the church, to oversee the church, to lead the church, to guard the church. It's to take notice of what is taking place in the congregation in order to guard it. And as your pastors, John and I, and soon to be Chris, we're, we're tasked with guarding Grace Church against wolves that seek to lead sheep astray, which seek to introduce falsehood and error that compromise the truth of the gospel. The flock of God faces many dangers. It has enemies. Uh, Satan is dead set on thwarting the church. But God's purposes will not be thwarted. But sometimes wolves come from outside. Sometimes they are inside the flock. And so God gives the flock shepherds to exercise oversight, to watch over, to protect the sheep. So we see this twofold task of pastoral ministry, to feed and, and provide for and to lead and protect the flock of God. This is to shepherd it. But that's not all Peter writes. There's this little clause there in the middle of verse 2 that we need to see, and it's way too easy to pass over. Peter writes, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Do you see that phrase, that is among you? God's shepherds are to care for those sheep that are among them. They don't shepherd the sheep across town or across the country or at the other church down the road or around the world. They shepherd those who are entrusted to their care. And this is one of the, I think, challenges that comes with following Christ in our age, unique to our day. 
it seems like it's become less, a little less clear just who is among us and who is not. Because the digital age, you see, has, has given us this illusion that we know so many people. So we use words like connections and friends and followers to describe all of these relationships that we might have. Are all of these people among us? Or as a pastor, are the people among us, those who might listen online to a sermon, wherever they might be, are those the people that are among us? Well, not really. The flock of God that is among us are those that we gather with. They are those that we live with, those that we are committed to, that we care for, that we show up for. To be among others and to be known by others is so much more than just gathering some information on people that can be put into an algorithm and optimized. It's to be in a relationship with one another. This is one of the reasons we have church membership. It brings clarity and definition to what otherwise could be confusing. Church membership identifies who the shepherds are responsible to care for, who we are in covenant relationship with. Pastors don't care for just some ambiguous flock of sheep. They care for those that are among them, specific individuals that have been joined together. The members of Grace Church are not, not some data set. You're not members of a church like someone might have followers on social media. As pastors, we don't aim to know you generally, but personally. You are among us. We are among you. And we take very seriously the task that God has given us to shepherd this flock, to care for your souls and to guard you from the devil, from deceit, and from your sin. There's nothing more important in our work than these tasks. And I love, even just this morning, the expression of that care. I mean, so Caleb falls, passes out here in the third row, and, I mean, in a, in a moment, Dr. Chris Mays is over there, caring for him. John, who happens to be his grandfather, but also a pastor here, is there praying for him, comforting his family, And it's just, and I come up here and pray, and we do this because we know you, not just some ambiguous group of people that we happen to be among. No, we have been called by God, placed by God in relationship with one another. And so our task as pastors, as we shepherd this flock of God, is to know you. And after providing this broad task of pastoral ministry to shepherd the flock of God, he turns next to a series of, of contrasts, and this is our second big heading, We talk about the task of pastoral ministry. Second, the dangers of pastoral ministry. Peter's going to make three contrasting statements. They each have a negative and a positive to highlight these three dangers of pastoral ministry. The first danger is duty. And Peter's exhortation to pastors is this. Serve out of love, not out of duty. He writes this in verse 2. Shepherd the flock of God, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Now, there are all kinds of things that we do because we must do them, because it's our our duty. We do small things because it's our duty. We do big things because it's our duty. Uh, I think yesterday or the day before, I I went and got gas in my car. Like, was I thrilled to be doing that? No, I did it because I had to do it. I did it out of, of duty. But it was a good thing to do. Maybe it's a school assignment that you have or, or chores that you do around the house. Maybe it's, it's a training at work that you must do or a phone call to cancel some subscription that you just realized that you had. We do all kinds of things out of duty, and that's fine and good. But it's far, far better to do things out of love rather than duty. 
to do things because our affections and desires are in line with what we've been called to do. That's far better. Think of it this way. Did Jesus do anything out of duty? Did Jesus do anything just because he had to and that was it? No. No, because Jesus' desire was always righteousness. He lived in perfect accordance with the will of his Father. C.S. Lewis, he describes the difference between love and duty this way. He says, A perfect man would never act from a sense of duty. He'd always want the right thing more than the wrong one. Duty is only a substitute for love like a crutch, which is a substitute for a leg. Duty is only a substitute for love like a crutch is a substitute for a leg. Most of us need the crutch sometimes. But of course, it's idiotic to use the crutch when your own legs can do the journey on their own. Sometimes pastors need the crutch of duty. Sometimes we all need the crutch of duty. We're called to do the right thing even when it's hard to do the right thing or when we don't feel like doing the right thing. But to only serve out of duty falls far short of the willing service that God calls us to. And here I I ask you all to pray for us as pastors. Pray that God would continually and rightly order our affections, our loves, so that we would serve not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have us. That's the the first danger, duty. Second danger Peter highlights is greed. And Peter's exhortation is that pastors serve not out of greed, but joy. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Just as it is today, so it was at the beginning of the church. Some teach and preach for money. They view God's word as a product to be peddled. They view work in God's kingdom as an opportunity for prosperity. And scripture, from beginning to end, abhors this idea. At every point, it speaks against those who would use what God is doing in the world, the ministry of the gospel, for worldly advancement speaks against those at every point. I was uh, thinking about 2 Kings 5, and, and there you have the story of, of Elisha and Naaman. And Naaman goes and washes in the Jordan River seven times, and he's healed, and he's adamant. He's insisting, I want to give Elisha something. And Elisha is saying, no, no. And then his servant, Gehazi, later in, in 2 Kings 5, he does a little scheming, works it out, that he gets all the money. And he is judged rightly for it. Scripture always speaks against this peddling of God's work. There are some false teachers today who drive the nicest cars, who eat at the finest restaurants, who uh, wear the best clothes, and they say that this is all a sign of just God's blessing. It's God's anointing on their lives. It's God's favor on them. But their so-called ministry exists for the purpose of shameful gain. They're in it for the sake of money. But this is not biblical Christian ministry. It's not the taking up of our cross and following Jesus. So Peter calls pastors to do their work eagerly. Now to do our work eagerly relates to this exhortation that just came before, to do it willingly. It speaks of this joyfulness in ministry that is glad to work for the joy of others. As pastors, we're to lean into our work, to spend ourselves on this work, doing it with all our energy, doing it sacrificially, Not because of what we get, but because this is what God has called us to do. Paul says it uh, in in 2 Corinthians, as he's writing to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 1.24, he says, we work with you for your joy. 
And that's what we give ourselves to. And so pray. Pray that God would guard us from greed. That He give us eager hearts, joyful hearts, willing hearts, as we seek to equip you for the work of ministry. In verse 3 then, Peter mentions a third danger in pastoral ministry. Pride. And he exhorts pastors to lead. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Peter warns against those who would lead the church in a way that, that goes to their head. In a way that grasps for position and prestige. To domineer over something is to, to lord over it. To, to boss others around. To view oneself as better than or over others. And at its root is simply pride. It's a self-reliance. And for many pastors, crouching at the door is this temptation to think that, you know, I think I'm, I'm pretty indispensable here. Like, I am indispensable to this church and to the purposes of God. And if we think that way, then our actions will soon follow. Leaders who domineer begin to put themselves at the center of the church. To domineer in leadership would be to view oneself as, as the one that God needs. The one that you need. But no. I am not the one you need. John is not the one you need. Chris is not the one you need. The one you need is Jesus. So we want to give ourselves to pointing you to Him. Rather than grasping at position and prestige, pastors are called to be an example. What kind of an example are they to be? Well, we provide an example as we follow the example of Christ. So we walk in humility, independence, recognizing that without the life of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit... We are nothing and can do nothing for the flock of God. Faithful pastors are to shepherd the flock of God by being examples of the way of Jesus. We, we come to serve, not to be served. We live in an age that, that has a, a ready distrust of authority. It's in the air that we breathe. It's in our homes. It's in our schools. It's in the halls of our government, if you paid attention to the news this past week. Who are you to tell me what to do? When the world sees leadership, it often thinks of status and privilege, like as if they're synonymous. But the Christian ministry is not about attaining some status or climbing some ladder. It's not about being a local celebrity or Christian famous or being a king in a little kingdom. It's about being a servant. We lead in order to serve. We live to die. Chris, John, and I, we don't function at Grace Church on, on some other level of holiness. We don't have some other rules that we live by. We are all called to the same obedience. We are all called to walk in the fear of the Lord, to subject our lives to His rule and reign. So our call to holiness is just as your call to holiness is. So may God give us faith and faithfulness that we might honor Him in all that we do. Peter knows the church is going to suffer and be judged, and so he wants to prepare its leaders by warning them of these three dangers, duty, greed, and pride, so they might shepherd God's flock well. Uh, I've been helped recently in conversations with John in particular uh, as, as we've talked about the task of pastoral ministry, and he's distilled it simply into these two categories. No God, and know people. And that's what we're called to do. We are called to know God, be devoted to His Word, to study His Word, to 
spend a lot of time in prayer, pray without ceasing, and to know people, to know you all. And it's, it's a wonderful privilege to be able to give ourselves to that, but it's, there are temptations all around to let pastoral ministry become something else. And our, our, I think our corporate culture uh, has, has certainly pervaded the church in a lot of ways where we begin to think of, um, we need quantifiable, tangible results. Like, what, what have you done for me lately kind of thing? And it's a challenge. I, had, I was in sales prior to being in ministry, and uh, that's what that world is about. That's what my life was about when I was in sales. Ministry is so different. And it's a, it's a challenge because it's so different. But it is so different. We are called to know God and know people. One, one small expression of that is I've uh, taken to calling my, my home office my study. I don't ever call it an office. It's my study because I want to know for myself. I want my family to know. And I want you all to know that what I do there is study. Study and pray. That's what it's there for. That's what that space is there for. If it was just an office... Then it's like, or, I mean, what emails are you sending? And are, are you sending, doing any faxes or whatever else you do in an office? Office things should be done in an office, right? But no, we're, I'm, I'm there to know God. Amen. And then we want to be among you and we purpose to be among you and have you into our homes and come into your homes and share meals with you. We want to know you all. Know God, know people. That is the task of the pastor. Now, after speaking of the task and dangers of pastoral ministry, Peter next turns to its hope, the hope of pastoral ministry. We read this in verse 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Peter's point here is not that what pastors will receive is better than what other Christians will receive. Not at all. What he is saying is that for the faithful labor of elders, a glorious inheritance awaits the hope of pastoral ministry is, is fixed on the future, just like the hope of the Christian life is fixed on, on this coming glory. Um, I was sharing with uh, a group of members of the church last night. Uh, I went to Salisbury, England several years ago, and there is Salisbury Cathedral. It's this massive, beautiful cathedral. And what's so surprising about it is it's juxtaposed by this small English village. I mean, you're kind of in the middle of nowhere, there's this little village, Salisbury, and then this massive cathedral. And in that cathedral, they've got uh, all kinds of ornate architecture. It's incredible. And it was built in, um, I should have looked it up, but it was either the 11th century or the 12th century. I don't remember. Built a long time ago. What was crazy to me as I looked at this cathedral and stood outside it, I mean, and you've got these little, this, in this little village, is that it took like 130 years or something to build. And so generation after generation of people that were in and around Salisbury gave themselves to building this cathedral that they never saw completed. They never saw it finished. But what, what compelled them, other than maybe forced labor, what compelled them to work on that cathedral was this vision of this building being there for generations after them. And so they were happy to give themselves to this labor. The same is true for a pastor in many, many ways, except we don't often get to see that kind of progress. A lot of pastoral ministry is just you see mess and failure again and again and again because you're dealing with, like, my sinful heart. We're dealing with your sinful heart. We're dealing with the world, the opposition of the devil. Like, it's a mess. But God is faithful, and he is 
building something. And so our hope looks ahead. Our joy is rooted in what's to come. It's this inheritance that we look ahead to, the one that is imperishable, unfading and undefiled, kept in heaven for us, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The pastor's hope in the midst of our labor, in the midst of discouragement, in the face of suffering is the coming of Christ. It's not in a growing church. It's not in having a beautiful building. It's not in retiring. It's not in a ministry platform and notoriety in the broader evangelical world. The pastor's hope is on the coming day when the chief shepherd appears. Nowhere else in all of Scripture do we come across this word that's translated here as chief shepherd, and it's obviously referring to Jesus. He is the one who is responsible for all of the sheep. And that includes the elders. All of the sheep. It's His church. Jesus Himself is really the pastor of Grace Church. As pastors, we serve under Him and in His name. And what an incredible privilege and hope is found here. God does not depend upon us to lead this church, to build this church. And full disclosure, it's this reality that has brought me such peace and faith over the last few months in particular. As we've grieved together and as our church has faced adversity and trials, it's really freeing and peace-giving to know it's not on me. It's on God. Jesus himself says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So what do we have to fear? When troubles come, the Lord is going to build his church. The Lord is good and faithful. He will keep us day and night. We can always run to Jesus. Jesus strong and kind. So as pastors, we work in his name. And whether or not the world ever views us as a success is absolutely irrelevant. Because we have our eyes set on a future day. A true reality, an infinitely more significant reality. The coming of Christ and the reward that he will bring when we will experience and know fully and finally the joy of our salvation. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for these reminders of how you have ordered your house and what we as pastors are called to do and how we as a congregation are called to live. Thank you that we get to sit under your word together, all of us. Even as I speak, I am also one sitting under your word. Thank you for the relationship that's established through your word. And Lord, would you give us grace to honor you as we sojourn together in this life. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.